Hello and welcome to this Owl Explains Hootenanny, our podcast series where you can wise up on blockchain and Web3 as we talk to the people seeking to build a better internet. Owl Explains is powered by Avalabs, a blockchain software company and participant in the Avalanche ecosystem. My name is Silvia Sanchez, project manager of Owl Explains, and with that, I'll hand it over to today's amazing speakers. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another podcast from Al Explains. I'm very happy to have here with me today Donna Rodell and Thibault Chappelle. I'm trying my best friend here. My name is Olta Andoni. I'm General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer of Enclave Markets, the very first fully encrypted exchange. I would like to introduce you to our speakers, Professor Adele. Uh, first of all, I'm honored to have an amazing woman on this podcast. She's a professor of blockchain digital assets, angel investor, and also she was the managing director of the World Economic Forum, the foremost, and the, was the first woman to chair a USA exchange, the Commodity Exchange. She's an active participant in the startup community in the United States, especially with New York Angels serving as their board members. Ms. Riddell is a very well-known professor in the digital industry, and she has developed in this, uh, and is been teaching actually for many years now at Fordham Law School and Wharton courses on blockchain digital assets, especially considering the legal and business issues in our industry and also other defined smart contracts. I also have here with me today Professor Thibault Chappelle. He's, a, he's an associate professor at the VUA, uh, uh, University of Amsterdam, and he is also a faculty affiliate at Stanford University. I have started following Professor uh, Chappelle since uh, uh, my very, very early stages in the academic uh, space here in the United States because I do also lecture in antitrust law. So who was the very first one where I was reading about uh, especially the connection between blockchain and antitrust. His very first, uh, uh, his, uh, the very first book, I think, was published in September 2021. We're going to talk a little bit more the end of this uh, podcast and uh, it's called Blockchain and Antitrust. Uh, and I highly recommend for every one of you uh, listeners to check that book out. So we do have a great topic, a, a very great topic, but also a little bit controversial. The topic, it was, uh, the topic is what is the missing link in blockchain education? Why do I say this is a little bit of a uh, uh, contradictory topic or is causing a a little bit of more debate among professor, pro professors and professionals, academic professionals, because you have some professors out there that think that uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency courses are not uh, uh, very much needed. And But at the same time, you see that a lot of universities worldwide, they're beginning to offer these cryptocurrency-related courses. And I think that this is a rising demand 
first of all, from the majority of the companies that are also, I think, are driving the demand for these courses. But again, what do do uh, Professor Adele and Professor Chappelle, what do you think is the missing link in the blockchain education right now? Do you think the universities are doing enough? Do you agree with these other academics who think that probably is not much needed for students to be exposed to blockchain education? Uh, so I think that this would be a great first starting question. Donna, Professor Adele, I'll start with you. So I might be I might answer that in a contrarian way. Um, I think that the you know at least the universities that I teach at have been fantastic in offering students a new subject. I started teaching uh, the first course of blockchain um, regulatory business issues at Fordham Law School in 2018. Now, you know, and now we have two courses and there are two courses that I teach. And yet there are other professors that are also weaving it into one way or another into their into their curriculum. Um, and this year we had a debate between the professor uh, that runs corporate law department and also is head is head of uh, professor bankruptcy and myself about the crypto regulation. So I think that there's more and more um, availability of courses and more and more interest and knowledge of the students coming into the courses from the onset. Uh, Professor Chappelle? Um, well, first of all, very happy to, to be on this uh, podcast with, with you too. Um, I, will, I will give a similar answer, I suppose. Um, I've been also teaching blockchain-related classes in law school since 2018. Um, so personally, this has been a great uh, experience now, I could give you more uh, than one of the missing link, as you as you call it. Um, I, I think students love the subject, right? And they generally want to to pass the hype and understand what's behind the technology. What I was very surprised to to realize is that they are absolutely fine with technical explanations, right? I'm not saying that we do the math. But to, to some degree, I can spend one or two classes explaining technically how it works, what's the governance, which is not something I've experienced when teaching antitrust that you mentioned in the introduction, right? When you start teaching about econometrics, law students will complain and tell me, you know, I didn't go to law school to learn about econometrics. But when it comes to blockchain, somehow they want to learn about the technical aspect. So that's the good part. Now, what I, what I see being potentially a problem is that there are some law schools uh, that are not offering anything blockchain related. I can think of several low and tech program LLMs without any blockchain uh, courses or even classes. I would say it's probably a problem in hiring. It's hard to find the people with the, with the expertise. It's also, I would guess, a problem in terms of incentives, right? Uh, which kind of incentive do you give to your professors for them to advance? Um, but the beauty of the world in which we live is that we do have online tools, and I could see no reason why we couldn't aggregate professors uh, teaching those you know, classes and potentially put together a common pool of uh, resources. So long story short, if you are a student and if you are interested in a subject, I, my guess is that uh, without even having to leave your continent, you could probably find good courses for you to follow, but it doesn't mean that you could do that within your university. So I guess so-so uh, answer to your question. Uh, so yeah, that, yeah, we, just, yeah, just to yeah, follow up on that, if, you, if I can, Alta, um, I think that one of the ways in, in which to get the courses 
um, into the law schools or other schools is students that manifest their ability to get jobs thereafter. Um, and so we've been doing that. So we've had, you know, uh, we've had um, internships at the Block uh, Chain Association. We've had, uh, you know, students go to the top tier law firms, um, et cetera. And so instead of telling me how well they did, which I'm very pleased to, to know, I always tell them, write the dean and tell the dean that these new courses, the courses that focus on tech and other things, really created opportunities for them. And then you see how those, those any resistances are, 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 you know, kind of removed um, and the barriers to entry start going down. Yes, I think you are right in um, one of the things that you absolutely uh, underscored um, is the ability to find professors that can teach the subject um, especially since we know that there's so many of the lawyers in the area are really stretched for time um, and such a dynamic area that's constantly changing and it takes so much work just to keep up with the reading, no less the ability that imparted to students. Uh, I, I, I agree with both of you, actually. I, but I, I do like the fact that uh, Professor Chappelle, you mentioned that even if the students kind of lack those technical abilities, you know, these courses are made to introduce them to the principal definitions. And I think that majority of universities are doing a great job. Uh, as an academic, I think that this is also very important. All these courses are also very important, not only to introduce our students to the uh, blockchain industry and to better understand uh, the technical aspect of blockchain, but I think that with these courses or via these courses, we can also do a better job to, to kind of educate the policymakers uh, how would you recommend policymakers to get started understanding our, our technology? Do you think that these courses are kind of uh, paving the path for the policymakers as well? Professor Chappelle, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, well, in the United States, you have actually a good example of the antitrust division which a few years ago sent some of their employees, actually all of the employees, just willing to, to take classes uh, in in a technical university, I won't name names, but uh, one one of the of the best one in the world to actually learn about the functioning of blockchain. And you know, to some degree, some people and Donna and I are are you know part of the crowd have spent years compiling everything or everything at least the most that we can indeed consume in a way that is easy to to digest. Which is not what I'm sure we had the same experience. We had to do right when we started and in invested the space. We had to find relevant sources ourselves, and often what we could find was was you know in contradiction with the thing we just read a, a couple minutes before. But now, luckily, you can actually take those classes, rely on the information that some professors will give you, and you know an example that I give often to my students is the one of a smartphone. No one in the entire world can design a, a smartphone from scratch. And yet, as lawyers, we do understand what's the implication of a smartphone and an app on privacy, competition, tax, and so on and so forth. And so That's a great this, analogy. The same yeah. is true, actually, for blockchain, right? You do not need to be able to create your own public permissionless blockchain from scratch. What you need to be able to do is to reach the technical understanding that is necessary for you as a lawyer to ask yourself the right question and to answer those questions. So I would say... Start there. Maybe books published in university presses is also a good idea. And once you have this little layer of knowledge, experiment. 
and it's not hard. I know it sounds scary. And if you go sometimes to YouTube, they will show you, you know, the hardest way on, on how to do everything in a decentralized way. It's perfectly fine to start with a centralized exchange, right? So that you can acquire your first cryptocurrency or an app on, on the iPhone for you to acquire the first Correct. NFT. And then maybe you move on to more decentralized solution, but it's important to do it for yourself. It's fun. It's not that hard. It's not that technical. Yeah, uh, if you Professor think about just taking taking slightly um, a different uh, angle from that, you know, you have now universities as well as businesses seeing with how are they going to grapple with AI, um, and and you know to push it away and say, you know, it, it, it's too scary, it's going to take jobs, uh, or students might you know get papers from there doesn't really incorporate it because it's going to be part of life, and so incorporating whether it's AI or blockchain or digital assets into a curriculum gives students the ability to think ahead of where we're going. And we see how technology is shifting so many different kinds of things. For example, just take something that most people didn't understand. They didn't understand how easy it was to create an online run on the bank. And you saw that in Silicon Valley Bank. So when when there are technologies, the lawyers and the business people need to extrapolate and say, what are, the, what are the additional risks that come with this? How do we do that risk management? How do we think about creating laws and other kinds of structures that can, it can cannot squish the, te- the, the innovation, but can put it forth in a different package that fits with society as we go forward? Um, because now everybody's mobile, and these are technologies that enhance that and build upon it. Uh, so when both of you teach blockchain technology in these blockchain courses, I'm sure that a good angle uh, for for all the courses that you've been teaching is also to consider the legal challenges that you foresee in the blockchain space and blockchain industry. Professor Chappelle, as I mentioned, you've been a big advocate, especially when it comes to blockchain and antitrust for the regulators also and the way how they should approach blockchain and antitrust from uh, I, and, and especially from a more cooperating angle, I think that you always mentioned that both blockchain and antitrust uh, not only seek to decentralize the economic opportunities, but there are some challenges that I would like for you to to touch upon a little bit for, for, for this podcast when it comes to uh, antitrust and blockchain. And uh, then I'll, I, I have another question for Professor Adele. Of course, uh, I'm, I'm happy to do so. Uh, what I want to mention first is that, you know, as a lawyer, um, because I was trained in law school, my first intuition was to actually tackle problems, right, or challenges, as you call them. And that's why I've written papers, you know, first explaining how you can use blockchain to abuse dominant position, how you can use smart contract to collude within the blockchain or in the so-called real space and so on and so forth. And eventually I realized, wait, wait a minute. I kind of think this is a good technology. I'm not saying it will necessarily produce good, but it could be used to improve the common good. So let me write a book in which I explain that the way by which we tackle all of those challenges, of course, should be done and done properly, but also in a way to, as Donna mentioned, you know, maintain innovation and maintain the survival of the technology. And maybe technology will disappear if it's not good enough, but I don't want the law to actually decide whether or not the technologies should survive. So that being said, more than happy to answer your question. I see a couple of uh, of trends um, pretty much across the world, and that touches upon antitrust, but more generally speaking, the law 
of blockchain, whatever that means. The first is, um, I think innovation, uh, the concept of innovation first or pro-innovation policy is in danger. Um, the UK just released a good white paper when it comes to AI, and I am yet to see a policy uh, guidelines coming from a government telling me, well, we want at you know, the top priority is for us to maintain innovation in the space. And then, of course, you address the challenges. So I would say overall, the space is becoming more confrontational. And you see that governments are less and less attracted to the idea to create a good ecosystem for the blockchain and more to tackle the issues. That's one. The second one, I would say regulation is coming now at the technology itself. A good example of that is the Data Act, uh, currently being discussed in the EU, that tells you, Article 30, that every smart contract has to have a kill switch function, which is, again, a way of regulating the actual technology as opposed to regulating use cases and users, which is something I would prefer. And third and final, uh, I think an issue we're going to see emerging real soon is the one of the complexity of the legal rules that are coming from all over the world, right? Not a single day without a new regulation being announced or at least addressed in the media. And at some point, I wouldn't be surprised if those rules and standards will start creating some sort of uh, conflicting, uh, you know, um, dynamics and or to, to contradict what the others are saying, which will be extremely complicated to, to navigate. So those are the three uh, legal challenges that I see emerging. Uh, thank you, Professor Chappelle. And Professor Adele, uh, here in the United States, we have been facing many legal challenges, especially from a regulatory perspective when it comes to crypto industry and blockchain industry, which I always like to sort of divide the two because I feel like we, we tend to commingle all the time blockchain and crypto. Uh, what are some of the main legal challenges you foresee, especially for the rest of 2023? Uh, and I probably and shouldn't be applicable only to 2023, but what are some main challenges, legal challenges that you foresee for our industry? Well, I mean, I'm going to be preaching to the choir here. I mean, for all of the times that I've started a semester, it starts with the same refrain, that we don't have a comprehensive regulatory framework in the United States for digital assets. Um, and that we talk about the bills that might arrive, et cetera. And in the end of the day, what we spend most of the time talking about is one regulation by enforcement, why regulation by enforcement isn't necessarily helpful. And some increasingly some of the very um, hostile type of attitudes that Chair Gensler has taken um, in, and many of them being unreasonable um, from, from many perspectives and points of view. So I think that this theme is continuing. I do think that in, just as there have been more students that have graduated learning of more about blockchain and digital assets, the people on Capitol Hill and in the agencies have learned more over the last, uh, you know, I'll say five years, but it's been obviously longer than that. And it is clear that they come to uh, approaching legislation with a more, not all of them, but many of them with a more sensible and, uh, attitude and one that's based on knowledge and not, and not fear or, 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 or some kind of rumor about what is going on um, in, in um, the whole digital asset space. So I think that's a, a long answer, but I would, I'm doubtful that in this year 
um, which has seen Congress be very, you know, inactive in being able to pass even a debt ceiling bill that we will get, though there are some very good senators and representatives that are pushing for some um, overall comprehensive regulation. I'm not sure that we're going to see what the industry was hoping for in terms of uh, an over, an, you know, an overriding um, set of set of rules and regulations that they have input into, um, and as well was well organized and well thought out. Uh, Professor Chappelle, do you see the same from European regulators? And I'm glad that you mentioned Article 30 uh, from the Data Act, because to me it shows that not only our industry is maturing, but at the same time we have better, especially regulators have a better understanding. But uh, even going back to Article 30, you you remember that there were like so many uh, other sort of feedback from companies that they were expecting for Data Act to be amended in order to apply to permission smart contract based systems owned and operated by an enterprise. I think this was sort of the main complaint at the time. But are you seeing sort of the same uh, uh, approach from the European regulators there? Or do you think with MICA or, or MICA now in place, uh, we are already walking on a, a more uh, established path, especially in Europe? Uh, a regulatory path, I meant, yes. Yeah, to some degree. So, you know, what I've seen, and the transformation is quite interesting to me, is that when this book came out uh, about the Brussels effect by Annie Bradford, uh, this was something which was quite shameful to, to, to most of the members of the parliament in Europe, right? So they were not proud of the fact to regulate first, uh, and some people started to say, well, the United States will innovate and Europe will regulate. I mean, it's a bit uh, too simplistic, but this was pretty much the idea. What I've seen in recent months is that now they actually put videos of themselves, members of the parliament, when they pass new regulation, including MICA and, you know, to some degree, the Data Act, the AI Act, the DMA, the DSA. I mean, everything is an act now. And they actually say, well, we are the Brussels effect. And we do it first because we know that we're going to force companies and ecosystem to comply with our rules. And it's extremely hard to design a business model that is compliant for Europe and a different one for the United States. So, you know, all in all, it, it, it is actually a way of regulating the entire world. So this is a desire and this is something that they do on purpose. Not all of them, of course, but for that reason, I'm, I'm afraid that we have a different dynamics in Europe where you know, being first is is actually what we want to achieve, as opposed sometimes to the quality of uh, what we do in terms of regulation. Well, being first is always great, but something that I hope to see, especially, I mean, uh, uh, among and between our regulators, is to see a lot of more global cooperation. Uh, being you, you, you said that perfectly. Being first uh, is is sort of the principle for European regulators, but at the same time, I think that we just cannot fully adopt those, uh, especially regulatory principles here in the United States, uh, as they are already. So I. Think that hopefully this is more of a cooperation uh, sort of mission between European regulators and United States regulators. Uh, so going back, also, but it's not Balta, It's not only it's not only in Europe, and we've seen the benefits of regulation um, in, let's say, Japan. Japan I mean, they had their early they had their early disasters, but then they made a comprehensive way of approaching exchanges. And from my understanding. The customers of FTX Japan have already begun to be able to withdraw 
their assets because those assets uh, came under the J- Japanese regulatory regime and were quote protected in ways that um, you know they they were you know in not in other countries from the alleged problems that happened. I mean, no, I I love seeing everything that's happening in in Japan. Yes, yes. Uh, go ahead, Professor. Just, just to make it clear, you know, I'm a professor of law, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm anti-regulation by default. And in fact, I've written a paper with Vitalik Buterin precisely on the fact that you may be a crypto anarchist all you want. Code is law, maybe, maybe not. I would say this is the case, but code is insufficient. That is a reality. Blockchain does not exist in a vacuum. You may decentralize your ecosystem all you want. You will still, end of the day, need to access digital infrastructures that are being governed by centralized players. And those players, because of that, may abuse their power against your blockchain project. So you do need good laws, good regulations. And I just wanted to make that very clear because I think we actually share that in common with uh, Donna. Yep, absolutely. And I shared that with you as well. So uh, we do not mean for this industry to be unregulated. And I think that this is the biggest sort of difficulty or obstacle that we've been facing because majority still sort of define this industry as not only being unregulated, but being that wild west that we keep always uh, referring to our industry uh, as such. Uh, Going back to the education, because uh, I, I would love for the students who are listening to this podcast do you have any any advice for them how can they be a little bit more involved in the blockchain industry if they would like to learn and and especially what are some uh, readings that you'd recommend or maybe some podcasts for them to watch in order to start learning about blockchain industry who should go first uh, <laughs> professor Rodell, go yep. first and reading. Well, I think one of the things that they should do, you know, and I know a couple of our friends are updating their books, um, but I do think they should start following some people on Twitter um, and they should look at some of the, uh, uh, like Lex underscore Dow, places in which there are lawyers that aggregate and congregate and discuss these issues. Um, but Twitter's a really good place to do it. Um, there's lots of very good, you know, they have to follow what the cases are. Um, the, the, the high-profile cases in the United States and other places. Um, if you uh, are interested, of course, in going further than just a you know kind of uh, a superficial a superficial understanding, looking at what's going on in the EU and start to look at other countries is very helpful um, in order to be able to understand the contrast and the different ways that that uh, regulators and industry are defining assets and trying to create regulation. Uh, so there's just there's just as we all know so much reading that happens all the time. Um, I do think there's certain people that uh, like my course. The students are supposed to read CoinDesk um, because it gives you a very good overview of what's happening. They read uh, Matt Levine, who has a fantastic column on Bloomberg, um, and if they can, you know, the Defiant, which usually they can get free, and they still be able to look at the block the block as well. Professor That's just a kind of smorgasbord of things. Super helpful. Thanks so much, Professor Adele. Professor Chappelle, any advice for students? Um, so I would say it depends on which resources you have access to. Um, if you are a law student uh, in the United States, um, you will get access to at least one of those, MLEX or Law 360. 
And there, it's very easy for you to set up an alarm with some keywords. Uh, if you do set up an alarm on the course decisions, because this is most of what we have so far, with you know the, the keywords uh, blockchain or cryptocurrencies, well, you get quite a, quite a few cases, but no more than you know one a day. I mean, that's already plenty enough, but you won't be overwhelmed. You could just you know screen whether or not it's in a field of law that interests you. Uh, so that would be one way if you have access to those. If you don't, I'm actually, and here I'm going to be sh- shameless uh, and, and make some uh, self-advertisement, but trying my best to make a lot of uh, resources open source. Um, I do have a list on the network law review in which I have uh, put together the books and articles that I think should be read if you want to invest the space from a legal perspective. Um I would say um, you could also do some uh, or follow some good newsletters. Um, if you do follow the Network Law Review, every month I put together the best articles in my in my view, of course, on the subject of blockchain and AI. Uh, about you know ten press or academic articles that I that I put together. Uh, but there are other newsletters that I think are fantastic. Uh, Decrypt, I think, is a is a good website. Uh, there is one that I that I like very much is the TLDR uh, newsletter. Um, they will send you a short email every day, and here again, aggregate a few links from all over the press. So I would say start there and uh, don't be afraid. Um, you know, there are lots of things that you could find uh, open access, and you don't necessarily have to to pay to get access to what is necessary for you to get started. I want to just add uh, two points to that, if I can. One, um, law students' eyes get very tired, but maybe they can listen to things when they're at the gym. There are tons of podcasts, like a podcast we're doing now, but there are tons of podcasts with really fantastic people that are available. And you know, maybe in your show notes, uh, also you can put some, but obviously Unchained, um, um, Encrypted Economy, law, um, Law's Code, I think it's called Code of Law, um, and a bunch of other ones, of, uh, of course, the, the bankless ones, um, and and for, you know lots of different special ones along the way. But I think those are really uh, helpful because you can listen to them. And fantastic lawyers are on there and have, have been able to uh, do that. So I would say podcasts as well. The other thing I would also caution people is to like in any in, you know, these are not law review uh, articles. And so often you just need to understand who your source is and understand whether or not they're really, you know, quotable and, and what kind of point of view they come out uh, from in order to be able to judge whether or not, in fact, what they're saying is based on, you know, um, hype a little bit um, or is, is grounded in reality. So I do think that's very important. I... I- Yes, go ahead. I, yeah, I'll be very brief, but since, you know, get me started on podcasts and then I go crazy. Uh, and I very much agree with the idea that you need to, to, to be aware of what are the stakes in the game when people talk to you. The podcast that I like very much is the one of uh, A16Z. Now, they do have 20 billion USD being invested out there. So, of course, they have an interest in, you know, pushing the narrative. I think it's a great podcast, uh, but, they're, they're, you know, that's good to be aware of. Of, uh, of what's there for them. Another one, though, that I will recommend um, is Acquired. Uh, it's a podcast not just about blockchain. What they do is a very long episode of uh, three to five hours. So if you travel a lot, that's the one for you. And they will go through the history of a company or a project and read all the books ever published on the subject and summarize, condense all that in those three to five hours. 
They've done episodes about Ethereum, Bitcoin, and a few others. And that's an absolutely fantastic resource for you to get started. Absolutely. And thank you so much. Uh, something that I would like to add, these are all amazing suggestions, is, uh, is our OWL podcast. We created this whole campaign just with the intention to, to sort of bre- break that uh, gap when it comes to, to uh, the understanding and to better navigate the world of Web3. Uh, we have created the Tree of Wisdom that I would highly recommend for all the listeners to go and check it out. Uh, our Tree of Wisdom includes five principles to at first, and uh, the first one and the main one is to understand the technology and, of course, be aware of misconceptions exceptions and we talk about classifying tokens sensibly which is a main principle or one of the main principle for the whole industry and of course the last one is think global uh, I, I think these are all very, very important principles. I highly recommend uh, the newsletter that Professor Sherpel mentioned, uh, all the sources that Professor Adele mentioned. Uh, there is so much out there for, especially for the students listening to this podcast. You just need to have the passion and you just need to have the desire to learn more about the benefits of this technology. And of course, always being open-minded and trying to differentiate between blockchain and crypto. I think it's also important to check uh, all these new courses that uh, uh, universities are are offering right now, which I think is a great opportunity, especially for for low students and uh, also other colleges as well. Uh, Professor Riddell, Professor Sherpel, this has been a real pleasure to have you on on this podcast. I hope we're going to have more podcasts like this, but I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and also uh, everything uh, advice related for, for our students. I hope to see you in another podcast. Thank you so much to our listeners uh, for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed our Hootenanny. Thank you for listening. For more hootful and hype-free resources, visit owlexplains.com. There, you will find articles, quizzes, practical explainers, suggested reading materials, and lots more. Also, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue wising up on blockchain and Web3. That's all for now on Owl Explains. Until next time.